What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Montana is one of the states in our country signing anti-queer and anti-transgender laws among the rash of laws signed just this year since January in Montana are House Bill 303 that allows health care providers to refuse patients based on conscience, Senate Bill 518, which could force schools to out queer kids to their families. Senate Bill 458, which defines biological sex as only male or female. Senate Bill 99, which prevents gender-affirming medical care for transgender kids. And I think it's worth noting here that puberty blockers and breast reduction surgery would still be allowed for young cisgender people only. And House Bill 359, which prohibits drag shows and drag story hours if there are minors present. These new laws will hurt Montana's transgender residents, and that's essentially their intention. Our guest today is raising specific concern and says that Montana's new anti-transgender laws will hurt indigenous people's rights and religious expression. Our guest, Rosalind LaPierre, is an indigenous writer, environmental historian, ethnobotanist, and a professor of history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Rosalind is an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Tribe of Montana and Métis. Rosalind, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here today. It is our pleasure. So in order to understand how the anti-transgender laws are impacting indigenous communities specifically, I'm wondering if you can help us start by painting a picture for our listeners of the indigenous communities on the land now known as Montana. There are 12 federally recognized tribes. Who are they? And historically, how do these tribes, including your own, take on expansive ideas around gender? So the place that we now know as the state of Montana does have 12 federally recognized tribes uh, that live on eight uh, different reservation or tribal communities, as well as there being several large urban communities here as well. Uh, The tribes that have been here um, have been here since time immemorial, and including my tribe, the Blackfeet tribe, And the tribes that are here, very similar to other indigenous communities across Native North America, um, have always had um, multiple gender um, identities, have always um, incorporated those multiple gender identities into our societies, into our culture. Um, But one of the points that I wanted Um, folks to recognize is that it is also part of our religion, religious practice, and our religious expression. And so um, oftentimes when there are, uh, where these efforts that are occurring in Montana, but also as we are seeing across um, the United States, when we are seeing these anti-transgender um, laws or just sort of bills that are against kind of multiple gender expression that are being either brought to uh, a state legislature. Um, so often, sometimes they don't get passed, um, but then also the ones that get passed and become laws that then those are not recognizing the indigenous communities that have been in those places, you know, for thousands and thousands of years and uh, not adding those thinking about tribal sovereignty, thinking about tribes that have their own, you know, government and political structures, that all of that needs to be sort of brought to the conversation that is often not happening 
at state at the state legislature level. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how gender expansiveness is a part specifically of the religious expression of tribes in the land known as Montana or your own tribe specifically, the Blackfeet tribe. So, yeah, I mean, I can talk specifically about the Blackfeet tribe uh, here in what is now Montana. So the Blackfeet um, historic territory uh, crosses the U.S.-Canadian border and it is part of what is now Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Montana. So it is a really large part of kind of central uh, North America. Um, the Blackfeet have always, to, to our knowledge, let me just say this, to our knowledge, the Blackfeet have always had multiple genders and gender identities. And one of the things that we see literally from the beginning, so within many of our different origin stories, um, our different um, mythological stories, we have um, deities who have who are multiple gender or no gender, right? Um, and so we see from sort of the beginning, uh, the idea that um, human society, as reflected um, in the supernatural realm and among deities, sees itself as having not just sort of the male-female binary that we see in Western society. And often when we hear about indigenous gender identity and gender expansiveness, we hear this phrase two-spirit. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that label. My understanding is that it is both a very useful term and also it kind of compresses a whole wide range of gender expansiveness amongst different indigenous communities into one kind of broad spectrum label. Yeah, so... So there, you know, I mean, so there was an effort um, in about the in the 1990s um, for indigenous people to create their own term terms and terminology to describe um, their own gender identity, and to, so two spirit became kind of this umbrella term um, that included a lot of different gender identities. And remember, within it, so people need to recognize within indigenous communities there really isn't the straight when we think about sorry. No pun intended. There isn't kind of a um, <laughs> a crossover between sort of you know lesbian, gay, transgender. So the terms that are used in Western terminology are not often even what you are going to find within Indigenous communities. And Indigenous communities have their own terms and terminology, tribe by tribe, um, for uh, what they. Um, think about particular gender identities. So because of that, because there was such a diversity within indigenous communities and indigenous communities wanted to sort of have a term um, of their own that described, and again, was kind of this umbrella term that was going to cover uh, a multitude of gender identities, that two-spirit, uh, meaning that both that people have both kind of the feminine and the masculine uh, within themselves so that both spirits are there. Um, so that's that's kind of where that term um, evolved from. And it's something that people um, definitely claim now within Indigenous communities, but there's also a new terminology as well that people are beginning to use the term queer um, as, as a term as well. And are there other terminologies in your own tribe, in the Blackfeet tribe? So yeah, so there are, again, different words that people use to describe basically the level of 
kind of masculine and feminine that may be in any one person. And so there were different words that if there was somebody who was considered female, but they were primarily masculine, there's a term for that, right? Um, If there is somebody who is female, who is primarily feminine, there's a term for that. If there's somebody who, you know, I mean, there's kind of these terms of like um, uh, that define different types of like, um, again, kind of gender expression. One of the things that I think that is unique about indigenous communities, it's not just among the Blackfeet, but other groups as well, is that oftentimes gender identity is something that we believe people are born with and that we believe is is granted by the supernatural realm or the divine. And so when a child is born, um, oftentimes parents didn't name them right until after a little bit and then they finally named them um, sometimes their names were kind of gender neutral until they knew the gender identity of that child um, children were free to say what their gender identity was and their parents believed that that was a gender identity that was granted to that child again from the supernatural realm or from the divine and so it was something that then was not questioned, right? And I can give an example. One of my children, when they were in kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher had asked all of the children in class to line up in the hallway. And the kindergarten teacher said, okay, all the girls on one side and all the boys on the other side, right? The way this happens in kindergarten. And one of our children said, well, I'm half boy and I'm half girl. And so the kindergarten teacher called me later that day and said, okay, (laughs) this just happened. And they said, okay, we got to figure out a new way to line up. Um, And so the kindergarten teacher was pretty cool about it. Um, But then it was something that, okay, that was the first time that we had heard them say that um, out loud, although we had known that that was probably what their um, gender expression was going to be. Um, And so from that time on, we just treated them as though they were half girl, half boy. And, and they have um, continued to have that as their gender identity. Um, and that was the first time that they had expressed it out loud was in kindergarten. I think that we know now within a lot of um, cultures and communities um, and even, you know, in Western society and American society, that is often that is around the time when children are expressing um, and knowing, you know, who they are. Uh, And so the difference being, though, oftentimes in indigenous societies, indigenous people say, "Okay, that's what you are. And then children are raised that way. uh, And um, historically, especially um, children were always raised with whatever it was that they said that they were. And it sounds like your child who expressed that in kindergarten had a teacher who was able to hear it and recognize and reflect and build on their own teaching practice and maybe recognize their older practices as boxing kids in. I'm wondering if these new laws give you concern about how kids who might not have that specific teacher who does that reflection and tries to improve things for all kids in their class could be impacted and potentially also how teachers could be less interested in adapting their classroom practices to their students' needs under the strength of all these new laws? 
Right. I mean, that's so this is one of the concerns that I had. And this is one of the reasons that I um, wrote the commentary that I did write. A couple of the laws that were passed were directly geared towards public school um, and what was allowed inside a public school or not allowed inside of a public school. Um, And one of the things that we know, for example, is that many of the schools that are on reservation communities are state-run schools. So here on the Blackfeet Reservation, our school system here is a state-run school system, which means that even though it's on the reservation, even though it's primarily Indigenous children and Indigenous teachers um, who are in the school setting, because it's a state-run school system, we have to abide by state laws. So the new state laws um, include things such as uh, that the teachers um, are not allowed to address children by their preferred pronouns or their preferred gender identity, that children, um, although previously it was considered um, discrimination and that children were not allowed to basically bully each other, uh, that now children are um, allowed to bully uh, children who express themselves um, in the way that they think is important, um, but that children are now allowed to bully transgender children and other children who have different gender identities. Um, And that's part of our state law now. And that is really disconcerting um, as a parent. Uh, my, My children are now adults, but as a parent to see that be something that's allowed within a school setting and kind of taking away the rights Um, both of children, but also taking away the rights of teachers to be able to create um, a safe and healthy, you know, environment for their students within their own classrooms. I'm wondering if you can help us distinguish between how these laws could be enforced, um, their state laws, how they could be enforced by the state governments versus on tribal lands or reservations. Is there is there a distinction there? So in terms of uh, lawmaking and um, on in the state of Montana or in any sort of state, especially in, in the Western uh, United States, there are three governments, right? There's the federal government, there's the state government, and there are tribal governments. And all three of them have um, a certain level of uh, jurisdiction over certain types of, um, you know, public policy uh, within any community. On tribal communities, all three of these come into play. So we have the federal government here on the reservation. We have the state government here on the reservation. And we have tribal government here on the reservation. So when there's any kinds of, you know, uh, laws that get created, um, depending on the situation, um, then the one or all three of those jurisdictions come into play. It's a little bit complicated and complex if you're not from sort of the West. Um, But I know I'm speaking to folks in California and, you know, California does have over 100 federally recognized tribes there. There are tribal communities, you know, from the far North of California all the way to, you know, the Mexican border. Um, So there are tribal communities throughout um, California and the same types of Um, issues that we have here in terms of that kind of federal, state, tribal um, uh, laws that get created are uh, are there as well. 
Thank you. And I, I wanted to bring up one specific law, House Bill 359, which bans broadly defined drag performances and story hours in schools, libraries, and other places where minors are present. The law doesn't say anything specific about indigenous communities, but I wanted to bring it up because it was used just last week as justification to silence an indigenous event. A Butte County Public Library canceled a previously scheduled event at the beginning of Pride Month saying, quote, our commitment to promoting inclusivity and intellectual exploration remains, but not in violation of the law. And here they're referring to this bill that bans drag shows and drag story hours. But the scheduled event was not even supposed to be a drag performance or a drag story hour. It was an indigenous transgender writer giving a lecture about indigenous queer and two-spirit people in a historical context while being dressed in everyday, not drag clothing. Rosalind, it seems like uh, the exact concerns you raised in your recent article are already coming to fruition, at least in this case. I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts about that case or around how Montana's anti-trans laws are directly impacting indigenous communities already. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that um, that particular case was pretty egregious. And I just to let you know, I don't I don't know the person and I don't know the, you know, the library where it's supposed to happen. I just I know what you know, which is what we read in the in the in the news. Right. In this particular case, yes, this this person is somebody who does um, give public talks. Um, they are part of the Humanities Montana Public Talk Network. Um, so Humanities Montana is connected to like the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, and so you can be one of their listed speakers and community groups and um, libraries can contact you. And apparently this person was contacted through Humanities Montana to give a talk at the library. And they were going to give a history of Indigenous peoples, um, Indigenous two-spirit communities. And, you know, it... It's really just surprising how um, they could take a law that is supposed to be, um, well, one, um, I don't know, the law should not exist, but kind of the prohibiting drag story hour, which if you read the law, and I do encourage people when they get an opportunity to read some of these state laws and how they're written, um, because they can be extremely vague. And in this particular case, this one was vague, and it says things like, um, people who wear exaggerated makeup. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'll just say this. We live in Montana and we have rodeos all summer long. Rodeo clowns wear exaggerated makeup. So are we going to ban rodeo clowns, you know, from showing up at the rodeo? I don't think so. Um, so I think this is a kind of a step in the door to trying to erase indigenous history trying to, you know, erase indigenous people's stories. Um, and it is impacting indigenous community in that sense, um, that this particular person was um, not allowed um, to speak uh, again about history uh, in their everyday clothing um, at a event that was going to be at a library that was geared towards adults um, because it was part of Humanities Montana um, and I think this is kind of the slippery slope uh, that we need to be really watchful of um, and that when we see this happening, point it out as much as we can and fight against it as well. And I know that lots of people in Montana were fighting against all of these 
laws that ultimately got passed and that um, got put into law. Um, and I know that in the na- next state legislature, um, there's probably going to be more. Um, and so it is, I'm not sure what the right word is. I mean, it, it is something that we just need to be really watchful f- for because, you know, even myself, I give talks all the time about the history of indigenous peoples. And I talk about, for example, today, you know, the history of transgendered and multigendered indigenous people. And I would not want to be, um, you know, I would not want to be censored uh, for the things that I would potentially say um, because of the way people think I might be dressed or look or that I'm a particular gender um, and be, you know, um, not allowed to speak in a public setting in a public venue. And that's what these laws are doing now. And unfortunately, it, as you mentioned, I mean, it is impacting Indigenous communities already. It impacted, you know, an Indigenous um, person who this is what they do. You know, they go and give talks about two-spirit history. Uh, and uh, it's really unfortunate, um, it, but uh, something that we need to continue to watch and continue to fight. And it is a slippery slope in Montana as well as the rest of the nation. I want to thank you for uh, highlighting this and joining us today. We are just about out, out of time, but I'm wondering if our listeners are interested in learning more about indigenous peoples on the land that is known as Montana and uh, gender expansiveness there. Are there resources that you can recommend? Well, one one that I would recommend is um, definitely take a look at the um, commentary that I wrote that's part of the conversation. Um, and the conversation is an open access um, uh, news source, n- news media source. Uh, and uh, that's one place to learn uh, a little bit. I also have links um, as part of that commentary where they can go to uh, more places to look at um, the history of these kinds of laws uh, and uh, the two-spirit communities. And there are quite a few links in your article on the conversation called New Anti-Transgender Laws Will Hurt Indigenous People's Rights and Religious Expression. We will have a link to that article from our website. Rosalind, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Rosalind Lapierre is an indigenous writer, environmental historian, ethnobotanist, and a professor of history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Rosalind is an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Tribe of Montana and Métis. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.